Hello, everyone, and welcome to our ninth episode of Honesty Hour. I'm glad that you guys are tuning in and listening to what we have to offer relating to mental health. Today, we will be discussing disability and its relation to mental health um, with one of my really good friends. I'll introduce him in a little bit, but just kind of wanted to reiterate, as you guys can see, it's a little bit different. It's just me right now. As I mentioned in our last episode, Ethan is going to be moving on to a different role. He will be taking on a more of a marketing role within the team of the podcast. Obviously, um, we will miss him, but that's something that he wants to pursue. And I want everyone who's a part of this podcast to feel like they're contributing in the way that they think is the most efficient way. And that's what he believed. And I will definitely support him. So going forward, you guys got me and, um, I'm really excited to be continuing this conversation with everyone. Um, so I guess starting off, let's talk about just how I'm doing for this past week. Um, it's been a little bit tougher, I would say. Um, had a couple of job interviews. They went really well till the final interview. And obviously, it does come down to the wire. And there's a lot of competitive candidates. And I, the, one of the jobs that I really wanted that was related to marketing, related to market research and mental health, I ended up not getting. So it's it's been just tough. I was really banking on getting that job and just being settled. But um, obviously things don't work out the way we want them to. So um, just kind of got to go forward from there. Um, actually, Javin is joining us right now. Um, so as you guys can see, Javin's here. I want to give a little bit of an introduction before we start, and then we'll kind of get into uh, our podcast. But um, so Javin, he's here, as you can see. Uh, we met my sophomore year of college. We met in a dance class, actually. We were taking this GE class, and we met in a dance class. Um, what Do you remember what the dance class was called? Um I believe it was dance and popular culture, dance yeah. 212. Oh, I'm yeah, I honestly, <laughs> yeah, when I signed up for the class, I didn't think we were going to be doing actual dancing. I thought we were just going to be learning about it. But right. I, I feel like that's like really what bonded us was being in these group projects and things like that. But uh, yeah, when I met Javin, we were both kind of going through the same process of being in the sciences. And we'll talk about that a little bit in the podcast. But we met and we just kind of bonded about just fundamental ideas and values that we kind of held dear to ourselves and also growing up in an Indian background, kind of also something to talk about between us. And it was really great. And so we really bonded, but um, I do want to give you guys a little bit of the background. So Javin, he is a senior currently right now, um, and he's the head of SAA, which is the Student Assembly for Accessibility. He started this last year, right? Is it last year? Yeah. So, well, late 2019. Yeah. Late 2019. Yeah. So he started late 2019. Um, and this is a project that he holds dear to his heart. Um, and he is very passionate about mental health as well. Uh, he is studying currently at USC gender studies with a minor in education. Um, and yeah, so we're going to kind of dive into an in-depth conversation about mental health relating to disability. And I'm really excited to have you here, Javin. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited. I've never spoken on a podcast before, so yeah. uh, this is such an interesting experience already. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. Um, yeah, so I kind of want to, obviously, this is about you, and I want to talk about it, so talk about you. So let's kind of dive into, maybe we can, we'll start off maybe before you went to college and what that experience was, and then we can go into college, and then we can talk about like how we met, and then from there we can talk about whatever you want to. Obviously, there was things you wanted to touch on and we'll go into that. But um, 
Yeah. So I guess like starting off, um, so you grew up in Chicago, as you mentioned. Um, What part of Chicago did you grow up in? Yeah, I grew up in the northwest side of the city of Chicago. But I live like like essentially walking distance from the suburbs. So my my neighborhood is called Dunning. Literally nobody knows what <laughs> Dunning is. Like if I told you a Chicago neighborhood like Lincoln Park, for example, like people and whoever listening might know what that is or like yeah. um like if you know, you know the big buildings of downtown Chicago and stuff. My neighborhood despite being in the city is like single family home, just very dense. Yeah. Um I grew up by the air like uh proximity with proximity to the airport so like O'Hare International Airport so they're close to there so it's kind of really easy to get to the airport to get to USC you know um yeah now like get out you know um but yeah uh I grew up in northwest side um you know in high school and throughout my childhood and you know this from you know also being Indian and (laughs) being in that sort of cultural background um that there's an emphasis to be in a profession typically that can make you a lot of money. <laughs> so um, my parents, I mean, for actually my parents, when they, you know, they grew up in India, uh, the, my, my dad particularly grew up very, very poor and becoming medical doctors in the United States was their way out of poverty. And so, and while I definitely respect that, it wasn't something that, you know, I, I was uh, keen on necessarily doing, although yeah. I did go along with it up until high school. And so when I was in high school, I took a bunch of, um, uh, courses like science-based courses um, more than I uh, four years later I don't even know how I did that um but like <laughs> right like I'm like I had the mental capacity to do all that science co- those all the science courses what the hell mm-hmm. um but anyways like I uh took those courses I, I I excelled in them you know and I applied to college as a biological sciences major and that's what I came into USC with so even when I got here or got to USC, I was a biological sciences major. I was a pre-med student. Um, and, you know, I felt like, you know, part of the reason I wanted to go out of state for college was um, I knew that if I wanted to change what I was interested in doing with my life, I needed to be far away from my parents where they can't have control over that decision necessarily. And so um you know USC offered me a lot of financial aid enough to be you know the cost of like an in-state public institution so that was very generous of them and that's literally the only reason I was able to attend (laughs) um you know otherwise I couldn't afford it by any means um and so you know I moved to USC still a bio major and everything and then and you know this is around the time you and I took that class together where we you know first met um I took my first ever like college science course like you know in college supposed to like you know and I nearly failed it. Um, <laughs> and it was a horrifying experience. I remember that too. I remember, were, oh my gosh, I remember too. We were like sitting outside before going into class and you just were crying. And I was like, oh my God, I felt so bad. I just, because I also, that was right after I actually decided to go into business, I think. That was like, so I was like chilling, but I experienced <laughs> the same thing you did with OCHEM. It was the exact <laughs> same situation too. Yeah, no, it was, it was it was a tough time in my life because, you know, the parents had indoctrinated a value in me, the values in me to, you know, oh, I have to keep on this one linear track and like I wanted to change. And so again, part of the reason of being far away was that they couldn't control that anymore. And so 
um, at the same time I was taking that class, I took my first ever gender studies course. Um, and that changed my life forever. Um, and particularly when I learned the concept known as scientific rationality, it was one of the first courses that we took. And the uh, scientific rationality is basically the idea that in our culture, we tend to uh, privilege scientific knowledge um, over cultural knowledge or understanding of the sociocultural. Um, and so for me, that was kind of like my bridge to the gap to get more involved in the humanities and I took more and more feminist theory courses uh, and eventually declared the major. Um, and yeah, my life was different ever since then. I, so you mentioned that um, you wanted to go to school like really far from your parents. And that was like a, having that expression to do what you wanted with your life. But when you went to college, you actually came into a mate. You were in a major that they, that's what they would have wanted you to do. Right. So like when you went into college, what was the plan? Was it to switch on? Did you already have in your mind you weren't going to be pursuing this? Or like, how did that come about? Yeah. I mean, I think in high school, I rationalized to myself. Like I was like, I, I think at the time I was like, oh, I'm comfortable doing this, but I want to know if I want to change. I won't really know. Like if I went to like, so my in-state institution in Illinois is University of Illinois, Chicago. If I went there and I commuted from home, I would see them all the time. They would be asking, like keeping tabs on me, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, being at USC, all they can do is phone call me once in a while. <laughs> and so, you know, I had that liberty to sort of go through an unlearning process in which I was like, what is the next pathway for me? Because a lot of parents typically think like, oh, being a doctor is a very linear path to take and they know what the next step is and things like that. Yeah. And so more other majors and other fields of study are more ambiguous. Um, that's scary for them. Yeah. That's, exactly, very scary, that's scary for them because right. I, 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 with my parents specifically, I think they are very, very linear thinkers. They want there to be a structure. They want to know exactly what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And obviously I think, that comes from a place where you were talking about how your dad came from poverty and he came from a, which is a very uncertain place to be in. You don't know where your life is going to be at one point unless you're going to accept the poverty that you're in. And I think both of our parents were in that same mindset of trying to get out of that poverty. And so my dad was the same way as well. And I think it's just like them having so much uncertainty in their life. They wanted that certainty for their kids. And I get that coming from that place, but it's, it's a big a weight on our shoulders to have right. to uphold that and which is not our responsibility too right yeah and I think that you know and I'm not sure if you had the same experience but like I had like I fit in the category of like 1.5 generation that's like an immigration kind of term like mm-hmm. what as opposed to first gen versus like second gen immigrant like 1.5 gen basically means that you are you were you grew up in the United States um but your parents are immigrants so like uh, if you were either born here or you moved to the United States and were immersed in the culture from either between ages zero to 16, yeah. um, like you are very much ingrained in American culture, but you had that disconnect with your parents, yeah. um, who aren't necessarily familiar with how America, how to navigate American culture. Um, exactly. so that was definitely something to navigate. Um, and so that was, that was something I had taught them over the years and now they're like completely happy with like what I'm doing these days. <laughs> cool, cool. Um, and like, I guess one thing too was, I remember when we were having like a conversation previously, um, was that one thing we talked about was like how distance kind of 
maybe helped a little bit with our relationships with our parents a little bit was talking about how distance made us grow fonder. And I think that's like something a lot of people can relate to. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially with what you're going through now, you've been at home for how many months have you been at home? Oh, I've been home for 10 months now. I left campus and my apartment on March 13, 2020. (laughs) Uh, Haven't been back since. Especially just being used to being here for, what, three years? Like being here for three years. Yeah. Going back and being in a setting where you've already established yourself as a person who has their own authority, but then having to go back in a place where they're asserting their authority. I want to talk about that experience. How has that been for you? Oh my God. Where do I even begin? (laughs) (laughs) And again, I want to preface it by saying that I love my parents. So oh, I, I and we, of course, we, all the time. <laughs> like, I, I love, love them. my parents. I promise <laughs> I love them. But it's just, right. it's different. It's different from the love people are used to. It's yeah. different from that conventional yeah. love people are used to. Yeah. yeah. And w- first thing I'll say is like, you know, the environment in which you learn is so important. My goodness. And it's, it's, that's become more and more obvious because of the pandemic. Like, Learning, doing college work and doing collegiate or doing collegiate work in a non-collegiate environment is such a, it takes such a toll. Because yeah. right now I'm working in a, at a desk right now where that I spent my entire childhood and my high school life. And I thought I sort of left that behind, you know, like, yeah. and now, and you put it so well, like I've been, I've been at USC for technically not even three years, 2.75 years, yeah. <laughs> full three years. Um and then to sort of just have to move back um, home and, you know, my, you know, be with my parents and my brother and, you know, we're all together again. Like it's, it felt so weird, you know, and you were alluding to it earlier, how like you sort of, by being far away, you appreciate your family more, you appreciate your home more, but like now that it's reverting back in a very unexpected way, it's like, it it was so hard to deal with. Um, You know, I think the toll of, not just the university, but everyone's sort of not being clear on what, like, you know, all of this is unprecedented, right? We don't know when the pandemic's going to end, you know, and yeah, just how everyone kept extending the deadline, right? So, you know, oh, like, we'll I be back in. Hope. Yeah. Right, right. Keeping, oh, they'll be back in four weeks. Like, never did I think that my last year of college would be impacted. Like, we all thought, like, oh, you know, the class 2020 would be graduating, and, like, it sucks that they had to, you know, have a virtual graduation and everything, but this will blow over, right? But here yeah. we are 10 months later and we're probably going to have some sort of virtual graduation ceremony, like, to be honest. Like, and that took me nine of those 10 months to even accept that. Accept that yeah. <laughs> no, quite, yes. No, it, it, that, that was part of the toll. Like, um, you know, spending, no one imagines spending their senior year of college in their childhood home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no one does, you know, unless they're commuting, you know, that's a different thing. But like, if you go yeah. to like, you know, if you live yeah. on campus, I, I lived in USC housing for three years, you know, yeah. and I was going to live for a fourth and, now I don't even know if I will return. And so that sort of lingered in my head this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it, it, it really, it really sucked. Um, and, you know, my parent, you know, you know how you can get like an occasional, like, you know, disagreements with your parents and things like that, that happened here and there, you know, yeah. and just over time, like, like I had a um, summer research program that I did. Um, it was like a humanity, social science uh, specific research program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I mean, yeah. but it was virtual. And so we were the first cohort to never um, actually be on the campus to do the program. And so that was kind of disheartening. 
And, you know, I, I made a bunch of new friends though. That was surprising. You know, our, our cohort was amazing. Like we all, we all had that sort of solidarity that we weren't in person together, ironically. And, you know, we became really good friends and we still have happy hours. Occasionally we had one the other day, um, like over zoom, of course. And, you know, but at the time of the of the summer, it was really hard to have to sort of manage my life where I'm not moving around or going to different places. I'm sort of sitting in one place, just doing the work, and it's not really fun, you know, or not really engaging. And uh, and also at that point, we uh, Zoom fatigue took over as well, you know. Like there's so many there's so many aspects to this. I could speak all day, all day, you know. Um, yeah. Like just the over the overstimulation you know we call it zoom fatigue right let's call it overstimulation by technology like we are looking at screens we 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 were told before that looking at screen we were looking the way we were looking at screens before was so bad but now look at us like that's all we can literally do yeah like whether that's email doing the readings um like whatever you're doing is like on the computer and i hate looking at a screen now so it's so it, de- it deteriorates my mental health <laughs> just looking at screens like well, like it's also mm-hmm. something too where it's i think which i we can talk about a little bit later but mm-hmm. when i we talked about how i literally have not been sleeping during this pandemic it's just been affecting my sleep routine significantly mm-hmm. and i think a big part of it is the amount of time people are spending online is like a huge thing it's like yeah. or like they're looking also for an escape and also the way they're finding that yeah. is through different media outlets and they're investing themselves in that. And also just with the whole pandemic, we've lost the sense of time. Like we are just yes. in this yes. like very revolving. Like it just feels like we're stuck in this one time and it's just going on forever. And yeah. so like once you get into that mindset, it's hard to also determine when you should be watching TV, when you should be on your laptop, especially when you're like, it's just like you're engaging so much in that obviously with the blue light and everything that's happening. It's like, it's very, it's affecting our mental health. Yeah. But like indirectly yeah. because of how much we're engaging with technology. It, yeah. It's just a very interesting experience being at home, especially just coming from a place where I, I don't know if you thought this way, but like when I knew I was going to college, like in a different state, I was just like, wow, like, I just know I will have so much more freedom. And I just think yes. that's something I was looking forward to. Yeah. But then it's like your senior year when it's like also a symbol of your freedom, you get a job or you're going into the workforce being kind of taken away from you. And like, just, you have to go back into a yeah. place of like, depending yeah. on parents and depending on someone else. Exactly. The big mental toll yeah. of a lot of people. Yeah. And I think that it kind of speaks to also work life in the United States. Like right now, like the work that I, I'm sure you may feel the same way and others may feel the same way, but I feel like school is just labor now. And ironically, I'm paying to do labor. Like this, like the, the education that, you know, that we're receiving just feels like oh I just my to-do list every day it doesn't feel enriching like I can't see my friends I can't have all of those social aspects of college that make the college experience what it is it's all gone and like just feeling like I'm just you know like I, I feel like I'm writing notes into a future that I don't know you know and that that uncertainty is just sort of like ah 
oh my God, you really don't know what you have until you lose it. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I, some of it, I remember too, being like a little bit excited that we were getting a break from school when this was all happening. Like <laughs> I, in the beginning, I just remember that. And I'm being like, oh, this is going to blow over. Like, this isn't a big thing. Like I also yeah. needed the break at the time because I was going insane and, and mental health wise in school. So I was like very right. excited for that. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, I was, I was, I was like kind of not starving, but I was like, you're not taking that really good care of myself. Yeah, so no, I could, he, I could fly home. The nutrition went out the like wazoo. Right, like right. that was like not yeah. a thing. And then I could get home cooking for an extra month. I know oh, that sounds great. I don't, like, <laughs> I don't have to buy my own groceries. But yeah, that's great. Yeah. But then when it all happened and like it really kicked in for me, I think mm. after the three month mark was like when I was like, oh, this is like a big deal. Like this is right. like gonna affect like our. This life. hasn't stopped. Yeah. Yeah, it's not gonna stop anytime soon. I can now say after so long that like. The pandemic, ironically, really brought our whole family a lot closer than like ever before in a way that I couldn't have imagined. Yeah. Um, I feel like we 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 talk more about um, things that are political, things that are you know very personal to us. Um, I had to even you know at, at this time actually, I decided to sort of do more investigation to my disabilities, and I had to sort of. Um, sit down my mom, for example, at, at one point and be like, you know, this is something that I have and she wasn't taking it seriously. And, you know, I want her to take it seriously, understand that like, I'm still capable of doing things, but I need to be validated for like what my lived experience is and not sort of have it be sh shoved under the rug like it had been the past 20 years. Um, so that was like a, well, that was a moment that we had back in like June of 2020. Yeah. Um, and like I did more invest, I took I took uh, more interest in like finding out myself what was going on with my body because there was so much ambiguity in my life. And so once I did my own investigations, I went to see doctors on my own. Um, you know, like making the initiative as opposed to like you know relying on my parents to say like, oh, Javin, you're just feeling this or whatever. You know, um, once I started educating my parents about that, they started taking it more seriously and understanding like what I went through. It's still like getting there these days, but my goodness, the way that we interact about, like they, they recognize my pain now mm -hmm. and they do like, you know, um, they do uh, encourage me more, um, but they don't, but you know, it, that took a long time to even get to that point. Like I'm surprised that it even happened. And I don't think that would have happened actually if the pandemic didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, we weren't put in the same house together, you know? Um, it's a very intimate way. Spend that time to discuss issues that you have and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So iron ironically, as much as the, the pain, chaos, and trauma of this pandemic, it has actually brought my family very close together. Yeah, that's really good to hear. I think there are some, there are like a lot of positives that do come out of this. And that's really great to hear. I think also for our audience to see that there mm -hmm. is some good things that have happened for people during this. And there are things that can, there are ways to make this to our benefit. Obviously, like we see in the media, it's like you take the time to bond with people that you didn't bond with before your family or something like that. Exactly what yeah. you're talking about or find a new skill or things like that. So it's really good to hear about that. But I guess like we can start maybe talking about your journey at USC, um, especially too, because we talked, we touched on how your parents were um, basically kind of di not disregarding, but kind of just pushing your disability to the side and attributing it to allergies was a big thing. Yeah. 
So do you want to talk about that a little bit? And then maybe if you're willing to like talk about your disability a little bit, and then from there we can go and talk about how it's affected your life. And we can talk about also SAA. Yeah, sounds great. Um, I think think I'll start where how I ended up founding SAA um, or how, how I ended up, how did that ended up even happening? Um, I was beginning my junior year of college and I remember being reached out to by um, a researcher at, who used USC's disability services and programs to reach out to students of color that had disabilities. Um, and I got an email saying that they wanted to interview me and I was like, that sounds like fun. Um, <laughs> and I mean, because at the time, um, I hadn't considered myself as disabled for my entire life. And, but ironically, I had been always throughout elementary school, high school and college. I had always been registered with disability services and programs. Like I had a 504 plan throughout my public school, like, you know, first and secondary school, you know, education. And um, I, people like recognized it, but they never saw it as like a real disability. They never considered it that I was never told I was disabled. Yeah. despite being registered, you know? Mm-hmm. And so in college, I still did that too. Um, like I still like, I technically had an accommodation that I never used, which was extra excuse absences. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just tell my professors that I just can't, I missed and they would believe me, which like, you know, that's a whole political thing too. I could come to another time, but um, I was like, okay, I mean, this sounds cool. I'm, I'm trying to figure, I, I started getting more interested about my body and figuring out what was going on with me because I sort of reached a breaking point at that time. And I was like, you know, I, I, I'm not crazy. This is something that doesn't normally happen <laughs> um, because well, what a lot of people see and what I've been told my life was that I had allergies. Mm-hmm. It was really a disability that manifested itself to look like allergies. And because of its episodic nature, that doesn't happen all the time, but happens. it does happen often. Mm-hmm. Um, people didn't see it all the time. And so it didn't seem like a real quote unquote disability. And so, you know, I was like, I I can't be crazy. This doesn't happen to everybody. And so I talked to, um, I talked to this uh, researcher. We met at the USC Village Plaza um, uh, and we sat there for two hours, two, two hour sessions. um, And she did like a interview, interview with me. Um, It was like semi-structured and it was about my, um, my experience at university um, being a person of color and a person with disability. And let me tell you, it was the most humanizing conversation of my life. Like I I got to talk about like what I've always sort of wanted to say out loud, um, you know, to somebody after so long, like I never did that before. I talked about it in so many different ways. I I didn't know I had the vocabulary to (laughs) talk about, um, because I knew, I knew in my heart it wasn't allergies and I had to find a way out. And so, um, and oh, I also want to preface it by saying that like, like you mentioned, like I do have actual allergies. Like I have a ton of food allergies. Um, and it can be considered a disability in the sense that it does affect my participation in activities. Like I can't participate in social, cultural activities. I can't eat Indian food. I can't even, I couldn't necessarily survive in India. But yeah, so going back to this, like I, um, I interviewed with this person and it was the best conversation ever. Um, And so I was like, my goodness, I had someone validating my lived experience for the first time in my life. And it wasn't a medical professional, (laughs) Um, you know, right? Like, 
and that's the thing. Medical professionals aren't necessarily there to validate the lived experience. They're not there to empower necessarily. It's not like that at all. So it's definitely not. Yeah. Um, I saw, I, I remember walking away from the conversation so refreshed yeah. um, and so empowered. I was like, what can I do at USC or what can I do now to like, you know, do something about this? I'm sure there's other people that are like me that have like ambiguous illnesses um, or disabilities that they don't think or know can be disabling or are disabilities themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, okay, what's one way to get involved? And so one day I was scrolling through Facebook <laughs> and I came across an undergraduate student government uh, like post. And it was about recruiting for a DEI council member um, to sit in for students with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they basically, they would have one person from each assembly, like every student assembly at you at undergraduate student government. So you'd have um, Asian Pacific American student assembly, black student assembly, Latinx student assembly, you know, someone from each kind of cultural background. Um, uh, so um, I was like, okay, I'm, I mean, granted, I just, and that this was a week after that conversation, conveniently. So, like, being very empowered, I was like, you know what? Why don't I apply and yeah, I mean, why, why don't I try? Uh, try, you know, like it can't hurt. And so, I I threw in my I I I submitted my application, and then I got an interview, and I was like, oh my god, I was hoping for just like an interview. That's so exciting. And then I saw that there was like maybe like 10 to 15 other people also interviewing because they had like a Google sheet or whatever. And I was like, Oh God, I'm probably not going to get this. <laughs> um, and then I interviewed with um, a person, the person who would actually eventually help co-found the student assembly for accessibility with me um, named Gwen Howard. She graduated um, in 2020 and uh, she interviewed me along with the chief diversity officer and um then I, I got the email saying I was hired. I was like, okay, great. I'm just going to sit on this DEI council. I'm chilling. Like, it probably won't be that much of a commitment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Nope>. Or so <laughs> I thought. So then two days later, I <laughs> she brings me into the student government office with the other student, Gabrielle Affleck, that she also hired. So there was two of us. And I was like, okay, two is cool. I mean, I'm glad that I get to work with somebody, right? Yeah. And then she sits us down and it's like, so we didn't hire you to... Uh, beyond the DEI council <laughs> we hi- we hired you to start and like co-found a brand new student assembly for ex- uh, for students with disabilities and I was just like wow. what did I like win the lot like like what like some it was like a very transformative <laughs> well, that, that, that literally that those two weeks right. changed your life yeah like I and keep in mind like I'm the kind of person at least before SAA and before all this happened, I was the kind of person that would, go, that would go to a club meeting and I would just sort of sit in the corner. I would sort of like, you know, not interact. Or I wouldn't, I never had a leadership position yeah. before this. And I was supposed to found a whole new organization <laughs> uh, on something, on a, on a community that I technically just joined in that sense, uh, even though I didn't theoretically already, I'd always been a like part of it. confirm that you're a part of that community. Right, right. Yeah. So like, that was very empowering, but I was like, what am I getting myself into? um and that yeah that 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 moment changed my life I was like I guess I'm gonna found a club like (laughs) again after being someone who would just never think of doing that in their entire lives I (laughs) I thought I would always just be the general member you know and then now here I am and so we go through the process um of starting up a new club which includes like you know talking about the vision what we wanted to see for the organization but it's basically a full-time job, right? I remember you telling me this because once you're on 
like the student council, you do actually get paid, but you weren't yeah. paid though because you're yeah. oh my God. a student organization. So that was like a big, big deal. Yeah. You're putting so much time, but no compensation was a big Yeah, deal. so exactly. So with undergraduate student government, the student assembly and corporation process is very, very bureaucratic. Um, and like uh, the reason why the student assembly a student assembly for students with disabilities never happened was because um, at the time this 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 policy isn't there anymore. Um, but at the time, there was a requirement that you needed five member organizations under your assembly in order to show the need for the student assembly to exist. Because a student assembly gives you student money, like student government money, to put on events and host weekly meetings and use like you know the student programming fee. Like we get that money. Um, and so, you know, they needed to see that we had, like, um, you know, a big enough population uh, to have an assembly like this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we went through this process of, like, trying to recruit e-boards members. Um, and, like, I, it, I, we knew it was going to be kind of hard because the disability community at USC is not unified at all. It's very, mm-hmm. like, like, all there is is disability services and programs. And that's pretty much it. Like you don't, there's not like a community, there's, there's like very, very few community groups based on like having so a disability. I just felt like I, when I heard about like you were starting this student assembly that never existed before, I was like, it never existed before. I was just so confused yeah. why that was the case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like when people think of like disability, they think of like, um, you know, what's this, how can I help you with that? <laughs> like, so we think of disability services programs or DSP like we have at USC. Yeah. And people think that's the end of the story. Like, oh, you just have your disability. There's your services and programs and that's it. You know, it's like, no, that's not the whole story. Like we need the, co- and that's the thing. DSP is not a advocacy organization by any means. They are a, literally a services and programs. Like, they have a service, yeah. they do it and they're done. Yeah, they don't. Right, that's what they do. They don't necessarily have, I mean, of course they like, want to encourage students with disabilities to participate, but they don't like do the cultural yeah. empowerment aspect that is necessary to um, bring a community of students together. And so, you know, we saw the need for this, right? <laughs> kind of really <laughs> very late in the game in that sense, game. Um, but, you know, we were, uh, one thing that I did um, was I presented to a bunch of my classes and other people's classes. And I was like, yeah, so you look at me now and you probably don't think I'm disabled, but I am. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the beginning of my journey into the invisible disability realm, <laughs> um, where like I felt really empowered to talk about the fact that my disabilities are invisible or they're, um, they're technically visible and performed, but they're not seen as um, real disabilities. Um, because typically a visible disability, stereotypically a visible one would be um, something that's like uh, either a, like, a, like a, a service, like a device, for example, like a mobility device, like a wheelchair or like a crutch um, or like a hearing aid even. Yeah. Um, but if there's no marker on your body to tell that you are, that you have some sort of disability um, or impairment, then how do you know, you know? And so that was, that's kind of the challenge that we had with SAA, right? Because we wanted to include, obviously, people who were already in the disability community, which are mainly visibly disabled folks. We wanted to expand that definition as well to include people like me and various other people who aren't validated for the pain they may experience with their disability that they don't 
see as disabling that means they've never been told it's disabling to them. And so very broadly, our definition includes physical disability. It includes chronic illnesses and pains, uh, mental illnesses, neurodivergence, um, and, you know, a variety of other categories. But those are kind of like the main ones. And, um, you know, it's not, you could go through like a whole, like, list of the various disabilities you could include but those are it's good to sort of categorize it broadly so that way people can sort of accessibly understand like oh what what is invisible um and why that why like you know mental illness for example you know may not be considered a disability because you can't literally see it yeah on you know on my face you know you can it's in my mind (laughs) um yeah so that's that's that was kind of the challenge right i had to sort of do that educational advocacy and again this is which Two, this is two months into my me getting hired for this, having never like led an organization before or like leadership position before, and like now I'm like trying to <laughs> um, lead this really whole go, thing. You've got to set it up. You got to set the structure oh, yeah. for it. You got to hire people to be on your team. Like that. yeah. Oh my god, what a, what a, what a, what a time that was. And mm-hmm. my goodness, yeah, I um. So I did that. We actually got like 20 applications. It was great. <laughs> we were so, I was very surprised <laughs> that that many people applied. It was a great turnout um, in that sense. Hired the e-board, went through the legislation process, and then SAA got a trial semester. We got an initial budget of $5,000. And then our trial semester was spring 2020. We all know how that semester went. Um, <laughs> we had a good nine weeks in person, um, <laughs> you know, and we actually had our first major event in person um, that cost probably the majority of our budget. Um, it was called the SAA Abilities Expo. Happened March 3rd. <laughs> March 3rd. Um, this was probably two wow. weeks before everything. You yeah, know, literally yeah. right before everything hit the fan. Okay. Yeah. So there's an abilities expo that happens every year in various parts of the country um, for folks with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and we basically subjected a replica and all we did was make it basically a, a big tabling fair. And um, we had or- nonprofit organizations from across LA County come and like um, talk to students about disability related resources and how they can get involved and things like that. And um we even had our own Cortex Center for Learning and Creativity um, come and table as well. Um, you know, we had, we had a bunch of different organizations. It was great. Uh, one, one organization that we brought was Guide Dogs for America. And um, it was very popular because of, you know, dogs on a college campus can be very attractive. <laughs> oh, I miss those days. <laughs> um, yeah, there's like this whole thing related to that as well, too, on with USC's campus. I don't know if you know about it, but it's like the whole Band-Aid solution type thing with the USC. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're like, okay. Oh, you know, best. let me bring you a dog. Let me bring you a wellness dog. Let me give you some wellness days. Let me give you, you know, like they, <laughs> they're all about, well, they're all about doing the bare minimum, you know? Oh, <laughs> like, uh, but the bare minimum that seems like it's the maximum but it's right yeah it's like we can't provide you actual services to assist you yeah but we can provide give you a dog give you a dog and that will (laughs) yeah yes no yeah i mean i mean actually in in that sense like you know even though mental health and disability are are very just can be distinct and are but are also interconnected in that way like Part of the reason, this is my theory, is that part of the reason why mental health isn't taken seriously is because it is invisible. <laughs> you know, it is of the brain or it's, of, you know, it's, it's internal. And 
people in our culture and <clears throat> you know i can only speak on american culture but people in our culture you know have a hard time rationalizing what is disabling what is debilitating what is mental deterioration what is lessened mental health you know like because they cannot see it on the body um i i so. also think too yeah with going off of that like you can't see it on the body and it's also still deemed as a point of weakness it's not exactly. seen as something yeah. that can be used to your advantage yeah. or it's not seen as also just a part of you and not all of right. you you know so right it's yeah. yeah there's a lot of reasons i think that just mental health is just not understood for what it is because of the way human nature is as well is that we make assumptions that's just how right. we are as humans is to navigate the world this complex world we live in we make yeah. assumptions that are not accurate and being able to unlearn that is like the biggest key for mental health and even with disability stigmas too. But I did want to, if you're willing to maybe talk a little bit more about your disability. Yeah. When who's listening about it, if they have the same disability, maybe if you can name it and then talk about it. And then also why like you feel like for 20 years of your life, it wasn't being addressed too. Yeah. So, um, the perhaps like the staple disability that I have <laughs> of the many that I have um, uh, is uh, Tourette's syndrome. So Tourette's is basically um, motor vocal tics that are repetitive. Um, and so it, it's kind of like a what I was saying about episodic nature, right? Like it's visible technically, like you can see me tick, yeah. like neck cracking or like stepping or like um, eye blinking or um, there are even times where like I would be in classes and I would be um, not grunting, I would be squealing mm -hmm. and people would like not know what to do because they would hear it, but I looked again, able-bodied. And so they wouldn't know whether to tell me like, oh, is that disruptive or not? You know, like, yeah. and like part of about Tourette's that we need to remain centered on is that it's, I can't control it. Right. Like I don't voluntarily do like neck cracking or I don't voluntarily like, like, do I want to squeal and disrupt the class? No, damn, yeah. you know? Um, but that's just, like, the my bodily reality. But for many years, and the, even with the squealing in class, I didn't even know that was Tourette's. I only was diagnosed with Tourette's in uh, in 2020. Yeah, I, <laughs> like I when saying, like, when you were going through this process <laughs> with the club and everything like that, like, that was, like, that yeah. year just, like, was when you really figured out that this is what it's called i have a name for it yeah it was very validating to also get that diagnosis yeah. you know that it's not just in your head like there is something that's going on with your body right yeah so yeah and then yeah, yeah. you're talking about maybe we can go back to the whole allergy situation and how that relates to that as well yeah so and so this is the interesting thing and this is again this is predicated on the fact that the pandemic allowed me to investigate my body more like it gave me time and the resources back home to yeah. like actually take the charge to like figure out what's going on. And so, and this is actually even a recent development that after, um, you know, asking my, my dot, my primary care physician who barely believed me at first. And then I, I asked if I could see a pulmonologist. I went to see a pulmonologist, went to see a neurologist who multiple neurologists who agreed that I had Tourette's. Um, and that's the thing. Tourette's can be very, it can, and this is, goes for any disability as well. It can its degree of severity can be depending on the person. It's hyper-individualized and that's yeah, for all disabilities. So, so like- in process though, then since it's so varied, how does that even happen? Like right, I mean, uh, they have a way of like assessing what it's like, like, uh, or like how you categorize it. Like, um, 
I remember the neurologist did some sort of like test on like looking at my eyes. My eyes also move like very rapidly in very arbitrary directions. Um, and I can't control that either. And um, he like saw that he saw me move and how I move uh, physically in like a straight line, how that Tourette's affects that as well in some way. Um, he did various tests to figure it out, but you know, there I've seen some Ted talks, for example, where like their Tourette's is very like, not, I don't even want to say the word severe, um, because severe might imply more pain, but they may not feel, we might feel the same degree of pain or not pain at all. Um, but like I've seen like videos of people with Tourette's who are, it's very, very rapid and it's all day, every day. But for me, I've come to learn that, you know, not only do I have Tourette's, but I also have obsessive compulsive disorder. In addition to that, I also have chronic anxiety or, gen or GAD, generalized anxiety disorder. Um, and all of those are interconnected. <laughs> yeah. And so after months of, after months of investigating my pulmonologist and like Ms. Pulmonologist has, has been great. He's like, I'm so lucky to have like found like you know found him and work he works with me and like one thing that we've both discussed and this actually relates to my parents basically giving me Benadryl because they thought I had allergies mm -hmm. they what I realized was that when I take Benadryl my body and my mind is closed is is like very calm yeah and so it goes away temporarily but then it comes back oh and so I was like kind of being mistaken a little bit like the, yeah yeah okay gotcha. right so what we ended up realizing was that what looks like allergies may actually and what what is essentially a lot of mucus production um and like sneezing like rapid sneezing and stuff which looks and manifests like allergies mm -hmm. is actually psychosomatic so it has to do with my anxiety having Tourette's mm -hmm. manifest that chronic compulsion to produce mucus and sneeze. So what looks like allergies is actually Tourette's-based anxiety manifesting itself to look like that, if that makes sense. Um, I had no idea that it could... I knew, I knew that there were physical responses, obviously, that came from it, obviously the tics and things like that, but I didn't know that it would physically create a substance yeah. out of your body, yeah. too. Yeah. Who knew anxiety could do that, right? Uh, and there's this whole like you know span of literature and um, research about the mind-body split, like a binary construction between like the mind and body is separate. That used to be a very common perception for a long time, and now people are seeing that the body mind are very inherently connected. And I think yeah, Tourette's yeah, holistic medicine is kind of being taken like now more seriously, and also like alternative types of medicine that are being ingrained into traditional medicine, especially now. Like, yeah, it's like, I think people are starting to realize that your brain, it's, this is like who we are. So obviously yeah. it's going to affect your body and it's not yeah. different from who yeah. you are. And there's a reason you can't also like put someone else's brain in someone else's body. It's just like, there is a connection to it. That is exactly, it's very important and it's, it affects our health significantly. Yeah. I completely right. agree. Yeah. And, you know, I think that Tourette's is kind of like that bit, ironically, that bridge to the gap because it's a psychosomatic disorder. So it involves the brain, it involves the body. So it involves repetitive movements of my body, but it's censored in my brain. And so ironically now, so I actually just a, maybe about a week ago, I started taking Lexapro, which is um, an SSRI um, for anxiety and depression. And it actually, I mean, we don't know yet. We'll only find out in due time, but that actually may heal 
that or not heal but like you know maxine may help that manifestation of tourette's because again it's based on anxiety um yeah that's very interesting yeah. too how like the chemicals and medication too are very very complex obviously we yeah. both don't really understand that we are not doctors we tried <laughs> to be we're not <laughs> but <laughs> but there, like I was having like it's very similar to like not similar but I was also I actually ended up getting tremors over this entire pandemic I still have them. me too actually yeah so I have them still a little bit but they're not as bad but the reason they came about was anxiety was the big thing and I didn't believe mm-hmm. it I was just like no, I've ha- I've had anxiety my entire life. Like I've had it and I've never gotten tremors. Like that was just not a symptom. Symptoms yeah. were usually like sweating or just mm-hmm. like increased heart rate, but never tremors. And yeah. then, yeah, I found out that like, I went to a neurologist, like my parents, like obviously they didn't take it seriously when I told them and they just, and I had to go figure it out for myself. So I literally just went to a family friend that I knew was a neurologist in my own time and figure it out for myself. And he saw them like, because my body was also, I actually had really bad, like, like spinal what uh, um like spinal twitches was like a big thing mm-hmm. that I was having too and yeah. that was something too he recommended uh, just going back to your point was Lexapro but now like just hearing from what you're saying it's like there's so many benefits but we don't even understand them to the full extent yeah so, yeah. yeah yeah sorry to interrupt you but no no yeah no yeah, no that was great yeah um another um but did the Lexapro pro help at all or yes actually so i've only been taking it for uh about a week and a few days um but i've already started to see some like benefits to it that's awesome yeah i i know with these antidepressants it does take time obviously you start to see real results obviously it like it takes at least a month for them Mm -hmm. to start to really start to manifest but yeah a weekend that's awesome that you're already seeing benefits to it Thank you. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. Again, after so many years, I'm just sort of like, what a, what a time to be. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, your parents too. How do they feel about you being on an antidepressant? Do they have? Um, I think my mom is kind of like on the fence. Like I remember telling her, like, oh, I'm gonna, I was like, I'm gonna go see the psychiatrist and get like help with this or like see him again after so long. And he, uh, mom's mom's like doing that thing where she's like agreeing with it but like internally is sort of like you know hmm. <laughs> my dad is like kind of all for it <laughs> um you know yeah. ironically so yeah you know. yeah my parents are kind of they're very similar that way like I remember they obviously they want my mental health to be the best state but they like I remember them always slightly being like so like when are you going to get off the medication like when is it going to be done like when are when are you going to like when is this like phase of your life going to be over and I'm like well here's the thing. I've tried it before and I've gone off of it before and it didn't work out in my favor. And you guys have experienced that too. So it's like, it's just like, it's, I just don't think there's a connect between, which is so interesting because I feel like whenever I have like pain that's physical, they always treat it with like a Motrin or a Tylenol. Like they'll throw that at me. Like I can take that so easily, but Mm -hmm. then it's like mental pain. It's like, no, you need to like figure that out on your own. And obviously I have tried and it's very hard, like figuring out mental health on your own. Like yeah. it's very hard. And also people like who are able to solve their problems through therapy props to them because I could, I solve some of them, but I cannot solve all of them. Mm-hmm. And that's like, that's a very, very strong thing. Right. But also there's things that like, I think a lot of, I will say like traditional Indian families don't understand is that it can also be a chemical imbalance in your brain. Yeah. It's like 
which kind of relates to what, why you're taking it is that there is some, like, there's something that's happening in your brain that you're trying to Mm -hmm. not supplement, but you're trying to like, I guess, like calm down those symptoms, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's not, it's just like, it's, it's not always related to just you being considered mentally weak. It's maybe related to a physical problem as well to take Mm -hmm. these medications. But yeah, I guess like we can kind of go into um, talking about how SAA also kind of shifted your perspective on your disability. Yeah, I didn't really have anyone to look up to. Like, I, again, I was just sort of problematized into submission to think that I I didn't experience this pain or like it wouldn't just go away. Yeah. Um, but when I when I started SAA, I met other people who had different kinds of disabilities and they validated me still like I wasn't like sort of like what that sort of like anxious expectation of like are they going to accept me into this group or this community it's like no they accept me with open arms you know like granted I was the co-executive director and founder but like they (laughs) but you know they still accept you know they still like like they we treat each other like we would treat anybody else and that's what anyone with a disability would want to be treated like literally anybody else. <laughs> um, and so that's what SA really did. And that's what it does to this day is it serves as a place for students with disabilities of a variety of uh, kinds, you know, to um, get together and sort of just be, <laughs> you know, be together, feel empowered, feel like um, we can understand each other in ways that, you know, the medical establishment refuses to see us in that way, you know, as people who are capable, you know, disability typically is equated, especially in a culture that we live in, as like incapability, but disabled folks are very capable. And disability has to do with participation, but really, and particularly from a feminist perspective, the participation is very political and it's usually uh, society's refusal to accommodate you know yeah it's not um, that individual not being able to participate it's the societal structures are preventing them from participating exactly yeah. but they put and that's why you know we live in a culture like in america like that's focused on individualism like mm-hmm. you think that the person is the burden right yeah. like you know but it's really the society that refuses to accommodate and you know america is very much culture of like you need to be able-bodied to perform labor to participate in society mm-hmm. and so if you have a visible disability, right? Like they may see like, oh, you're incapable of participating. That's the assumption. And if you have an invisible disability, they may see it as like, oh, it's just a problem. That way you hide it so you can still participate in the society, which contributes to the idea of like, what's constructed as a real disability. Like if I have like um, an invisible disability that's completely invisible, no one can see, it's not even performed. Mm -hmm. People still think I can participate in society. And if I have, a if some if I have if I have a chronic pain for example that can't it's not visible they'll problematize it and they'll say like oh it's a problem to be solved take medication and then you're good so that we can still participate right but yeah. it's like no I want validation for my pain I can take medication sure but like yeah. know that like I can't be able-bodied all the time yeah um and so that's why we're trying to sort of expand the community that far because we need to include people that haven't been part of the conversation and that conversation is fairly new in and of itself, right? <laughs> um, so going back to SAA, like SAA is there to host events and hold conversations um, and talk about the things that people, particularly in this country, don't want to talk about, which is 
vulnerability and able-bodiedness. Um, that validation you've talked about was a big thing for you as well, was like feeling validated from people that are in your club or who you've talked to, like the PhD student or researcher. Um, so how, how are you guys um, implementing like practices to help people find that validation? Like what if someone comes to your club where they like they might be in a similar situation that you were in where like their parents might not acknowledge their disability they don't know what to do they don't know where to look for support mm-hmm. and they still are not I mean they're coming to you and they're they don't have confidence in themselves because of right. just the way that their life has been and how society has treated their disability what do you what what are you guys doing to help those students obviously you said you had events but mm-hmm. on top of that like what types of practices what professionals are you talking to like how does that work mm-hmm. for your club that's a good question. Um, I think I, I, I'll sort of respond to it with a, a question that someone asked me, which was oh, I, at some point when I was presenting my research, which was like, how, um, when, when starting a club like this or trying to advocate, especially for the invisible disability or there are invisible disabilities that are, that are visible disabilities that are rendered invisible by society, mm-hmm. do you um, do the advocacy first or do you build the community first? And I think that we have to build a community first, because again, how do you see other community members when you literally cannot see your other community members, right? Um, So I think the first step in that very long process is building the community first. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to expand our reach. We're trying to do like educational, we have like educational flyers that we've made. Um, We've done like, I've done like present, again, presentations, like even beyond that recruitment, right? Um, About disability culture, percentage of student government, like, you know, just trying to get the word out there to get students to even understand what it means to be invisibly disabled um, is like a huge, like undertaking in and of itself. Like I can't even, I can't emphasize that enough, you know? The next step in that process would be to do the advocacy part of, you know, how do you get, how do you, how do you tell, because again, we're not telling anybody that they are disabled. That's not the point, right? Like I'm not trying to like pathologize or medicalize anybody's bodies, you know? The point is, is to, be able to decide for yourself what's disabling and what's debilitating for you. Like, like a, a medical professional may not say, and again, this is not, and this culture would be like, oh, that's just your way of getting out of things or making an excuse, right? But it's like, no, I've been gaslit my entire life on the chronic pains that I've had, and mm-hmm. I've never been called disabled. I think that what I experience mentally and physically is debilitating. Like, I, it's episodically debilitating, but that doesn't mean it's just because it happens episodically doesn't mean it's less valued, you know? And so getting people to sort of unlearn that about themselves that, you know, we're, you know, the unlearn that white Western myth of bodily perfection, um, that we're all just perfect bodies and all able to participate. And like, if you don't make it to a certain success point, then you're just weak. Like, that's, you know, that's a myth. <laughs> um, it's really about that sort of learn unlearning that culture of compulsory able-bodiedness. And then, that's when you get to the parents part. That's when you get to educating others about it. Um, a lot of people with invisible disabilities um, get gaslighted um, by professors even, for example, because they may not see the visibility. They're like, why are you handing me this accommodation flyer? <laughs> um, that, that happens a lot, more than you would think. <laughs> um, so also, which I learned through um, one of the professionals we interviewed is that they're not allowed to question it though, too. Yeah, no, they're required. If, 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 you, have an, if, you, if you have... A DSP or a, a, a disability accommodation from the university, 
then they are required by law. And you can, I think you can sue. I, don't quote me yeah, on that. No, um, <laughs> no, no, you can. I, I remember they were saying that by law, you were required to do that, especially one thing that it, we actually, it was our first podcast. I actually learned about this from one of the professors. She was saying though, too, that um, you can also register for that with general anxiety disorder or depression. You can also register yeah. with those things, yeah. which a lot of people don't know that that is actually yeah. a thing which yes. is really important right. because people don't think of, they think of right. like a depression is like an underlying thing that like, you're just sad and you're just, right. that's how you go. It, that's like it. a problem that will be solved over time, but it's not and a it's problem. Not, it's yeah. Obviously people know it's debilitating, but they don't like, they don't know that to the extent where it's like, you can't complete tasks. So you can't, you can't right. go about your education. Because right. Of it. So right. Uh, right. But anyway, sorry, going back to what you were talking about. No, yeah, I mean, that speaks to like, it speaks to a few things. Like, if you don't know that you have a impairment that would require an accommodation, or if you don't like aren't aware of what accommodations are, or if you're not open to it either, then like, how do you participate? You know, like, if how, I'm trying to phrase it in a specific way, like, how do you know what, how do you not know what you don't know? I don't know if I'm even saying that right. People don't think that time is an ac- access accessibility issue for example like just getting more time extensions for example like you like said like extensions or like excused absences things like that like those are basically that's accessible time as some theorists might call it um and that's like a more research thing like um thinking about time is more of an accessibility issue um because especially in our culture um we have a very strict and rigid way of understanding time um that your time is your entire life your time is money for yeah. one thing. And it goes back um, to that structural, um, just like, just structures that are in place that we have to abide by just because we decided as a society that those are things we have to abide by. And then we determine people who can abide by them as being disabled. Yeah. So, you know, it, it speaks to that um, sense of like, how, like, I don't know what accommodations I would need if I don't see it as a disability. And so that's why, again, expanded definition is important. And it's kind of an interesting phenomenon when, you know, someone with a visible disability, people presume that it's painful because they can see it, but it's not, they may not necessarily feel pain from their visible disability. People with invisible disabilities, people cannot rationalize that pain. It's a very weird, like, like binary opposition, isn't it? There's no way to really show that pain to someone ever. Like, I think that's like going back to the whole idea of mental health is just like, there's no way to show your own pain Mm -hmm. unless like you're like, even if you're crying or you're showing some sort of like emotion related to that, no one knows what it feels also to be feeling that in that moment. And it's, Yeah. yeah. And that's, very frustrating and i i can relate to it too but i obviously can't relate to what you're talking about is this whole idea of like just having this disability and being very misunderstood for how it's affecting your life and how you're handling it too i think that's like a thing too is people might be perceiving this person as just being lazy or just not wanting to take action for their disability when they really can't take action when there's nothing for them to do so Right, right. It's like, even at some point in my life, I was kind of like, how do I accommodate this? Like, what does accommodation look like? And, you know, fun fact is that, and important fact, is that, you know, when you, when you go to a place like DSP, they have an evaluation sheet mm-hmm. um, where they like, they will go through like, like, they, they will have you talk about yourself and what you experience. 
and they will help you understand what accommodations you 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 can get from USC or from any whatever institution you attend. So, like, if there's any, and this to all the audience members out there, um, if you feel like in some way that like you need an accommodation, but you accommodation, but you don't know what it might be. Like you might feel some chronic pain or you might feel like you need more time for things, but you don't know if that's like a real thing you may need, like an accommodation from school. Like, go, like I think just making an appointment with like the, the services and programs, disability services and programs provider, you know, yeah. um, and getting that evaluation done is like the best thing, one of the best things you can do because you can get, sort of get that validation in some way, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I also want to point out that accommodations aren't special treatment either. <laughs> Um, accommodations, it's a, a disability is essentially, not essentially, I don't want to reduce it, but it's an equity issue, right? Like if we have, you know, people think that we're on this, like, let's, let's say this same playing field, right? People think that yeah. if people with disabilities um, or impairments um, are on the same playing field, that if they get accommodations, they're somehow getting more advantages than other people and it wouldn't be fair, right? Yeah. But in but, reality, yeah. a disability is by, again, not the inability yeah. to participate. And so when you get accommodations, you're put on that same playing field. So it is an equity issue. Yeah. Um, and so that's why, again, like you may not consider yourself disabled. You may not, cons you may not think what you have as a disability, but you can get accommodations. You can get validations in, in various different ways, whether that's through a cultural empowerment group or through accommodations from the school, you know. There's various ways, but yeah, sorry, just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> yeah, that actually, like, it's a perfect segue into our conclusion. So usually what we do with our conclusion is we ask guests for resources that they have for um, students that might be interested in learning more about disability, mental health related, or just disability, um, uh, just disability in general. Obviously, you had mentioned DSP, maybe just making that appointment. I had a question right before we go into the resources. So sure. with DSP, do they, if you, if you check off a box or something like that, you obviously have to show some sort of verification for that disability, right? That's the thing. Like I, I despite me running this org, I am not an expert on DSP. Like I know foundationally what it is for, but yeah. like I didn't step foot. Let me tell you this. I didn't even step foot into DSP until my junior year of college. Oh my gosh. Because DSP is located on a place on campus uh, yeah. on the side of GFS behind a bunch of bushes, secluded from literally everybody. You can't even see the sign. So, what does that say about it's like that literal messaging of that, <laughs> of where it's located, speaks volumes, right? It's like they want to exclude them. They don't want to pretend that disabled folks, um, you know, all go to the school, but it's like, there's research that has shown that about 20% of the undergraduate population across the United States has some form of disability in some way, 20%, right? Um, so like, again, messaging is everything. Yeah. Um, but with DSP, I mean, actually, when I, um, I saw my specialist, actually, for the first time a few months ago, first time, and again, I'm a senior, right? So <laughs> I'd never seen, met them before. I didn't even know I had a DSP specialist dedicated to me. Um, so I figured that out and I talked to them and they actually did get me, get my doctor to have to fill out some form. And so I guess there is a verification process on that. Um, and again, I, I disagree. Like, I feel like I don't think that you should have to verify what you, ex like, so you don't, I, I don't have, I shouldn't have to. And again, the fact that I'd have to pay to pay a doctor to give me that verification, I think that's a huge barrier to access. Like, what if I don't just don't have that money to get that accommodation? Like, that's a 
inherently classist for one thing. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, like getting verification is, it shouldn't have to be a thing. Like I, I know what pain that I have. And like, if, if the DSP specialist can like tell me that I need these accommodations based on what I feel and experience, then I should be able to get the accommodation. It, it really reminds me too of this whole grueling process of like finding a therapist, like that whole mm. idea of like, it reminds me of like having to explain your life and your problems over and over again to a different person. It's like, I already know what I've suffered through and I now have to justify it to someone else when it's something that I've been going through my entire life, you know? So that's like another part of it too. That's pretty problematic, I would say as well. But um, do you have any other resources? Obviously, um, SAA, do they have, do you guys have a website or something people can access, like look for resources and things like that? Yeah, we have like a weekly email list. Our organization email is usgsaa at usc.edu. Okay, easy enough. But yeah, so besides DSP SAA, one I really wanted to plug, and I think I mentioned um, it earlier, but it is the Cortex Center, um, the USC Cortex Center for Learning and Creativity. Mm the Cortex Center offers a lot of different services related to, uh, well, occupation, because they are um, occupational. I think the, I think they're all occupational therapists. Mm-hmm. And occupation, like we typically think of occupation as a job, right? Like that's what we associate yeah. occupation with. But occupation is actually about participating in meaningful activities in your day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. And so an occupational therapists help you sort of structure your life in a way that is meaningful. Uh, that's kind of their job. And so they they um, uh, they work with students with disabilities, but they also work with the general student population as well. And uh, you know they offer like time management workshops. They will they can they have a bunch of different events that you can go to. Um, they're I think they're a great mental health resource. And and someday when we can return to campus, or you know future generations can return to campus, <laughs> yeah. um, you know um, that'll be that's something that you can go to in person. They have like. Um, they have this like room where you can sort of just play with different objects and it's like a very quiet room and they have like games and they have like different, they have like fidget spinners. They have like a bunch of different like toys and like objects and like crafts and like, it's, it's very, it's a very calming environment. They play like calming music. Like it's, um, it's a place to be if you want to sort of calm down, be mindful and, um, and decompress from your day of school in person. (laughs) And, you know, but again, that's an in-person resource. And, uh, but yeah, I think overall the Cortex Center does a great job with, um, you know, assisting all kinds of bodies with their mental health issues. Um, Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I've missed seeing your face and I definitely (laughs) hope we can talk again soon, but um, it was great to have you on here and talk about your experience with disability and mental health and also talk about SAA so people have somewhere to now look to to find a community on campus relating to disability. So that is awesome. The work that you're doing is great. I've seen just I've met with you while you've been going through this process and I can see how passionate you are. So it's really great to have you on this podcast. And I know so many people will be really interested to hear about this, too. So thank you so much. And I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. You too. Okay, bye. All right. Bye bye. Well, hi everyone. Um, I hope you enjoyed the podcast with Javin. Um, I really enjoyed it. Just having a good in-depth conversation about mental health with one of my friends who is doing really great work on campus was very insightful. Um, obviously, there 
a lot of what he said um, is relating from his own experience and he has personally dealt with a lot in his life and he was willing to share it and be very vulnerable with all of us. So I do really appreciate that. Um, as he said, there are a few resources that he mentioned that you guys can check out. And um, if you guys have any other topics related to mental health that you would like us to talk about on this podcast, feel free to reach out to us on our website. Um, we have pitched it in the previous websites, but you can also um, check it out on our social media, Honesty Hour podcast at USC. Um, thanks again, and we will see you next week. Not again. It's a red stick.